0: The Arthropod.
1: The Arthropod is the home for the wonderful, weird, wacky world of insects. Hosted by Jonathan Larson, Jody Green, and Michael Scavarla.
0: Welcome back to Arthropod, your entomology podcast. I am but one of your hosts for today, Jonathan L. Larson of the University of Kentucky.
2: Ooh, I'm one of your other hosts. I'm Jody M. Green from the University of Nebraska Lincoln.
1: You're not getting my middle initial. Oh, my identity stolen. Jeez. Uh, my... <laughs> the my grumpy name...
0: conspiracy theorist of the podcast.
1: That is not true. My name is Michael Scavarla from Penn State University.
0: We are excited about today's show. It's going to feature Mike talking about one of his favorite bugs. Before we dip down into the content, though, I wanted to start the top of the show by offering a hearty congratulations to our very own Dr. Jody Green for winning an award through Nebraska Extension for excellence in extension. Way to go, Jody. We're very proud of you. Thank Uh, you.
2: Thank you very much.
0: We're going to put a picture in the show notes of you holding it up. I, I found one on Facebook yesterday. Oh, so uh, we're it's my, that. yes,
2: that's my consolation prize for not getting to go to ESA, but Jonathan got to go to ESA.
0: I did go to ESA. Uh, I think that this is better than a consolation prize. This is somebody finally recognizing you for your excellence and realizing that you are really good at your job. And I'm proud that they gave you a trophy for it. Um, well, thank you, guys. I hope that the listeners will will send you congratulations as well. <laughs> uh, I did get to go to ESA. That's the other sort of hot topic item here in the atmosphere, I guess. Uh, ESA Jam 2022 is over. Uh, as of this recording, it was in Vancouver. Vancouver is a beautiful place. Jody, you should be very proud of your native land.
2: I am, but I'm not very happy about the, your Air Canada experience.
0: Yeah, I'm not going to use my podcast clout. To harm their business model, to drive potentially dozens, maybe even hundreds of people away from ever using Air Canada. Uh, I didn't have a good experience, but that doesn't mean that they don't they don't do a fine job at other times. But I wasn't impressed. But <laughs>
2: let's just wrap it up to say it wasn't they weren't nice or funny, which is just so that,
0: not. It's true. Yeah, they did not fit the mold that uh, that most people set up for Canadians. The meeting, on the other hand, was very good. Um, There was lots of cool art. Uh, I don't know if people were paying attention on Twitter. Uh, Maybe by the time this show comes out, Twitter won't exist anymore. But there were lots of cool artists that came to the meeting this year. We had a very heavy focus on uh, using entomology art. And there was an art show that you could look at. Um, There was a cool vase that somebody had made. Mike, you saw the pictures. What did you think?
1: I I thought it was really cool. I didn't get to go to the meeting, but I was following along as people posted stuff on Twitter. There was a drag show. Like a metamorphosis drag show. And I'm actually real bummed that I missed that. So I'm hoping that it comes back in future years when I can attend. I think it has to
0: become sort of a, a feature at ESA. I think that would be great. I didn't get to go. I was dragging really bad myself. Uh, uh-huh. uh, the three-hour time change—that on change.
1: purpose. That was a, that was
0: a bit of a dad joke.
1: I think. Okay.
0: Yeah. I <laughs> could The three-hour time change was really kicking my butt, so I ended up going to bed before I could make it to the drag show. But I heard it was great. That uh, is a bit of a, an update on where we're at in our life, I guess, and how Jam was. Uh, hopefully, everybody else that was there had a good time. Post pictures to us on Twitter if you like jam or if you have a favorite memory. Uh, but today we're not going to be talking about NSOC. Today we're not going to be interviewing an outside guest. We're going to have kind of an interesting setup. I think Jody's going to be like the Barbara Walters here, and she's going to interview Mike about the bug that's taken over his life.
2: Well, and I do think he is still a special guest. He's usually our last and special co host, but he's our special guest today. <laughs> We usually cut it out, but he does talk a lot about deer kids. And today we are going to focus on deer kids because before I met Mike, I had never even heard of a deer kid. I'm pretty excited. And the last time we talked to Mike, he was saying how he was out in the field doing things. And so I think it was very exciting. I think the listeners will really enjoy it too, because you know, we're all about learning something new. So Mike, are you ready?
1: I am. I'm, I'm actually really excited about this. It's a good time to ask me about this, too, because we've been doing this research for just about four years now. So, you know, if you would ask me about deer kids when I started this, we wouldn't have known nearly as much, but I've got some results to share, uh, Ooh, that's which exciting. is exciting.
2: It is. Okay, so let's start off from the very beginning. What is a deer kid?
1: Let's back up a little bit. Okay. <laughs> so what's a kid? Uh, and... A pair of shoes. Oh no, those are keds. That's a question. When I, I got a lot at the op check, people kept asking me, "What are you saying?" So it's ked, K-E-D, uh, and there it's the family Hippobosidae, and there are a bunch of keds. World, they're found worldwide, and there are three main subfamilies, three main lineages. Hey, but stop! But like, yeah. what are they? Oh, so they're parasitic biting flies. So that's an insect. It is definitely they're insects. An insect.
0: Okay, so sorry. they're just fancy mosquitoes.
1: Kind of. Are they fancy ticks? They are dorso-ventrally flattened. So it, it that means that it looks like you took it from the top and the bottom and squished it into a pancake. Yeah, like a bed bug. Kind of like a bed bug. Not like uh, a flea. Not like a flea. Okay. <laughs> Fleas are laterally compressed. So yeah, they're dorsoventrally ventrally flattened. They look like pancakes. They have these sprawling legs that kind of they kind of crab walk. Um, because they're flat in in have these sprawling legs, and they do have wings, so they can fly. There are, like I said, three main lineages. One, which is the most diverse that feeds exclusively on birds, so they're bird kids. One that is kind of a catch-all, they've got weird hosts, the the hippobosines. Recorded hosts for various species include ostriches, carnivores, so mammals in the in the family carnivora, camels, horses, uh, and some other weird stuff. So they kind of do, they have weird hosts and feed on weird things. And then the last lineage, the mammal feeding keds, almost all of which feed on cervids. Uh, So things like deer and elk, uh, various antelopes, which aren't cervids, but kind of look the same. Uh, And this also includes sheep keds. And so it's this last lineage, the mammal feeding keds that, that I've been working on, and specifically deer keds. In North America, there's four species, two that are out West and f- primarily feed on black tailed deer uh, or mule deer. One, the neotropical deer kid, that occurs in the Southeast of the United States, but also extends all the way through Central and into South America, where they feed on white tailed deer and brocket deer. And the species that I've been working on, European deer heads, which is found in the Northeast part of North America, Um, Pennsylvania is kind of around their Southern range limit. uh, And then they go up into the Northeast and parts of Canada, and they feed on whitetail deer and elk and moose. And they're actually an introduced species that is native to Northern Eurasia. So Britain, Scandinavia, all the way West into uh, Russia and the Russian Far East.
2: Okay, so these four species are collectively called deer kids.
1: The four species are collectively called deer kids because here they all feed primarily on deer. So I use deer kid interchangeably to talk about the four species collectively but also European deer kids specifically because we've only got one species of deer kid where I'm at uh, and we've only been really working on one. So It is, it can get kind of confusing. I'll try to say European deer kid if I'm trying to distinguish the two.
2: Because many times you've mentioned deer kids and I've looked them up, you know, my Googling. Are they called louse flies as well?
1: So hippobosity, the larger family that includes deer kids are called louse flies because they, they don't look like lice at all. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Because we had mentioned like ticks, you know, different. Yeah. Because they're. They're biting flies that are yeah. ectoparasites. Lots of things that bite other things are called lice. Like aphids are called plant lice, yeah, and True. whatnot. So they're not related to like Theriaptera, the parasitic lice at all. They're try to hide your
0: disgust at people's common name choices, Mike.
1: Well, they're just naming everything louse. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> right. So they're not
2: related to lice at all. What is? Correct. What are like maybe their closest relatives then?
1: Hippobosidae, the family, which includes deer kids. The larger group is Hippobossoidea, the superfamily. So, other families in this larger group include things like bat flies, which are also ectoparasitic biting flies. They live primarily on bats and tsetse flies. Mm, okay. So, the Glossinidae, which includes a number of species primarily in Africa. And the whole superfamily has some really cool, kind of shared biologies especially concerning things with reproduction, but all of them are also blood feeding ectoparasites.
2: So they all need a blood male to survive, both the male and the female?
1: Yes. So uh, both male and female kids uh, and uh, the other hippobossoids as well, they, the males and females, both blood feed.
2: What is their life cycle?
1: So it depends. Uh, we'll focus on the, the mammal feeding Keds, well, I guess we'll focus on deer Keds. So the life cycles vary a little bit, but in general, they hatch out of the pupae and the adults are winged. They'll fly to a host and blood feed. Uh, unlike ticks, which will take one big blood meal in a gorge. And then that's all they take. Keds will feed multiple times. And oftentimes they're feeding multiple times a day. They'll feed at least European deer kids will feed four to six times a day for 10 to 15 minutes. So they're taking lots of little meals, unlike a a tick, which is taking just one big meal. Uh, They like snacks. They they like snacks. snacks. Uh, Male and female kids will find each other on host and mate. And then I think the coolest part of their biology is what happens next. So unlike most insects, which lay a whole bunch of eggs and just, and usually abandon them, don't have any kind of parental care or input. All Keds. The egg is kept inside the mother and hatches internally and mm. grows up in a special Ked uterus. And she secretes a Ked milk that the larvae feed on. And they go through all three larval instars internally inside the mother. And then she gives birth to a fully developed larvae which often will weigh more than the mother herself weighs after it's given birth. And then the larvae immediately turns into a pupa and falls off the host and hangs out usually in the leaf litter. So like yeah, a they- kangaroo. Like, well, yeah, it's, so it's a, it's an internal development, um, like mammals, uh, mm. and like, you know, some snakes and other reptiles and things, which means Unlike most insects where they have very little investment energy-wise into into offspring, keds are investing huge amounts of energy to each individual offspring, and so don't give birth to a lot of uh, larvae. They're really hard to rear, so we don't have really good rearing data on them, but estimates are that each female ked will birth anywhere from five to 10 larvae, and that's it. So they have really low fecundity, but really high investment in each offspring. So at one time, that's how many she can produce? And through her lifetime, uh, five to 10 throughout the entire life. Because she's only ever ever having one inside of her at a time. So she'll give birth to that Ooh. one, and then she'll hatch another egg inside of her and develop that one. Wow. It's really weird for an insect, right? That is really weird. So it's a really cool system that they've got going on. And we'll talk about pathogens later, but when you start thinking about pathogens being vertically transmitted from mother to offspring, because these larvae are developing so much inside the mother and having all of this time with her, that really opens the door to a lot more time for various pathogens to, to transmit to the larvae. How long does a female deer kid live to have that many offspring? Again, we don't have really good data. The best data we have comes from European deer kids, Lipoptena cervi, the species that we have here in the Northeast and in Europe. And their biology is a little bit different from the native species in North America. So European deer kids, all of the adults mass emerge in the fall and they'll come out and fly on warm fall days and they'll seek a host and fly to the host once they land on the host they they all fly around for 4 to 6 weeks depending on how warm the fall is you can still find adults on host the following summer so we know that as adults they live at least a year now the problem is once you've got the next generation of, of fresh kids coming out and landing on host they all get intermingled then you can't age them after they're on a host so we don't know after that year time, do they live another year? Do they live two years, three years? Or do they? does the old generation die off pretty quickly thereafter? We don't know. We just know that they live at least a year as an adult. And then if you think about, two, the fact that they're mass emerging in the fall, if the pupae fall-off host, if, if you're the first larva out the door and you turn into a pupa in October or September or November or December, You're going to be hanging out in the leaf litter as a pupa for almost a year before you hatch out as an adult. So from egg to the end of what we can kind of watch, we know they can live for almost two years. But again, nobody's kind of done rearing experiments with like tracking individual kids after that year. So we don't know if they live more than a year or if they die after that. So it's at least two years, maybe more. So they're also really long-lived for for an insect.
2: Yeah. They sound super weird. Yeah. Is the research mostly like field work then or can, has there ever been any like outside deer farms that you can track deer kids on or sample leaf litter?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot more research that's being done in Europe. So in Europe there's a couple weird things going on that don't seem to be happening here. In Scandinavia, in particular, deer keds can become so abundant that they feed on and kill moose because they they just exsanguinate them. Wow. Um, and the they're so itchy. The moose are so itchy because of so many deer kid bites that they'll rub off their fur and get alopecia and also succumb because you know it's winter in Scandinavia and they have no fur. Deer kids can also be so abundant that they are considered an occupational hazard for people that work in the forest. So like people that are gathering mushrooms or loggers or anybody that's hunters, people that are out in the woods, they're so abundant that, yeah, they're an occupational hazard because they're biting so many people. Because of the moose issue and the human issue in Scandinavia, there's been a bunch of research and some really cool studies looking at the pupae and leaf litter. So it turns out that small mammals like mice are major predators of deer ked pupae because they look Mm -hmm. like these little hard black seeds. And so, but they're packed with protein. So mice will eat them because they're a great protein snack and it's like any other kind of small hard seed that they're going to be eating out in the forest. So uh, yeah, mice are major ked predators in the leaf litter. Mm -hmm. They also... If you think about Scandinavia in winter, it's covered in snow, but these, these pupae are just rolling out of the fur of the moose and the deer and whatever. So what, are, how do they survive that snow? Because they're hard and black, they heat up really quickly and from the sun. And so they'll, I forget what the word is. I want to, it's like countersinking or something, but they'll heat up so much that they'll melt through the snow and get down to the leaf litter, even though there's like a foot of snow on the ground. Um, and so then they'll get down to the leaf litter and be protected from the cold weather. So that's really cool. I want you to describe what they look like. Cause I'm a little place? bit obsessed with looking at pictures of them. Yeah. So the European deer kids in, in most kids in general, like I mentioned before their door's ventrally flattened. So they look like a pancake. They've got these sprawling six legs. Uh, they're really hard and sclerotized, uh, which makes sense for an ectoparasite because deer are grooming all of the time. And you want to be hard in case the deer starts to try to groom you out, it'll be easier to survive that. How do
2: they stay on the fur? Do they have claw? Like I'm thinking about like lice or things, fleas that have like spines or claws. Like, do they have those kind of things to yeah, stay on? Yeah, they have
1: really strong claws that they use to grab onto the fur. And they've got these flattened heads that are kind of forward pointing with a sharp proboscis on it that they use to kind of like a horse fly. It's not piercing sucking. It's more like cutting the skin and they'll let blood pool up and then lap from the pool of blood the neat thing about deer kids too and this whole subfamily that they're in is they hatch out with wings and they'll fly to the host and then once they land on a host they shed their wings in most individuals you can still see the wing stubs where they dropped it but the wings are deciduous they fall off and so that makes it easier for them to like swim through the fur and they're fast When you find them on a host, they are difficult to catch because unlike ticks that are slow and kind of bumbly, deer keds are, I said swim before, and it really is like they swim through the fur quickly. And it's really unlike all of the other keds, uh, the two other subfamilies, neither of them shed their wings. So you think about birds are flying a lot and bird keds will fly to a bird, feed on it, and then maybe fly to a different host. So they're flying all around between different hosts. But deer kids in this whole subfamily, they drop the wings. And so once they land on a host, they are restricted to that host. In general, they will move between hosts from like a mother deer to a fawn uh, with that kind of close contact during feeding. They can move during mating. Uh, They can move if deer are bedded down next to each other and maybe touching or very close. They could crawl across the leaf litter if the deer aren't moving very much thing that worries us here is when hunters are addressing game, they will crawl up your arms and bite you. Uh, or when deer processors are processing deer, they'll, they'll get on the deer processors as well. The other thing that we're worried about, too, is when they hatch out and they have those wings, they will fly onto people at that point and bite them as well. So there's a couple points where humans can encounter deer kids. It's mostly centered around hunters, but it can be uh, the flying kids as well in the fall. So fall is the time that we would most
2: likely encounter them just because that's when they are at the mobile part of their life cycle?
1: For European deer kids, yes. This species is weird because they mass emerge like that. The other three species that we have in North America, they fly as long as it's warm out. So neotropical deer keds, you can find, you know, April through October year round. The other two species out West, you can find as long as it's warm out, you know, up in the mountains, that's going to be a shorter window because it's colder, but they'll, they exist all the way down to the California coast. And so, you know, in Southern California, you might have them flying year round. So that's, it's a weird difference that we've got with European deer kids here in the Northeast as well. Uh, it actually makes it easier for to work on them because they mass emerge. You have this big bloom of adults. That means you can go out and collect them reliably if you know where to look, where the other three species, because they're just kind of out whenever, it's a lot more difficult to at least catch the winged ones flying.
0: I have a small point of clarification. You keep saying we when you talk about uh, what you're doing in Pennsylvania and who is concerned in Pennsylvania, is this the Royal We, or do you have a, a research group that you could talk about here?
1: So it's not the Royal We. I think I've said it before in the podcast. I have a 100% extension appointment, so I don't I'm not really supposed to be doing research. One, I can't help myself, but two, the whole push of this was started because I kept getting clients that would send in. Deer kids that said this bit me, what is it? They're like, it's a deer kid. We don't know anything about them. Well, does it does it have pathogens in it? Is it like a tick? Will I get sick? I don't know, but also nobody knows. And so because I started getting these questions, it felt pretty extension-y to try and answer them. But again, I don't have a research appointment. So I teamed up with Erica Mackinger, who is our veterinary entomologist at Penn State. And she's got a lab and students. And I pitched this idea, like, I'm getting these deer kids. Why don't we investigate them? And so she thought that was a great idea. We would both started within a couple months of each other. And I pitched this idea right when she was fresh and new and looking for ideas. She'd probably pick it up now anyhow. But she's much busier now as a you know professor trying to put in her tenure package and running a full lab. So I got in at the right time. So I've been working with Erica in her lab, which includes a number of grad students, postdocs, undergrads. Uh, It's really been beneficial for me because I don't have the kind of resources that she's got, but I do have time, which she often doesn't. So it's been a really mutually beneficial relationship for both of us. She's been one of my best collaborators. I can't say enough good things about Erica. I hope she doesn't hear this because I don't want to be embarrassed. So yes, it's not the royal we, it's me and Erica and a bunch of the students in her lab.
2: Cool. And then how do you go out and and do this research? Like, where do you go? How do you find them? Are you out with nets on mass emergence, swinging in the air, trying to find them?
1: Yeah. So it depends on the question that we're trying to ask. So initially, we know deer kids are on deer, and that's going to be the easiest place to find them a bunch of the questions we had initially were one where are deer kids in pennsylvania if they are biting people where are people most at risk there was no good range maps for european deer kids or the other three species in north america it was just general statements of like european deer kids are in the northeast well pennsylvania is in the northeast we know we have them here but where specifically are they in the state so the first push of research that we did was just figuring out, like, where do these things even occur? So for the other three species, I did a literature review and pulled a bunch of museum specimens. For European deer kids in Pennsylvania, we did collections uh, off deer at deer processors because hunters go all over the state, kill their deer and bring them back. Uh, And that was a really easy way for us to screen deer for these kids and see where they occur across the state. So the first bunch of years we're collecting deer kids off of deer. Uh, and then once we had the specimens in hand, the other question hunters and in, in the public often had were, are these, these things have bitten me, are they transmitting pathogens? So we just had a paper come out maybe three weeks ago where we screened a few, what was it, like 600 deer kids for typically tick-borne pathogens like Lyme and anaplasma and some other things, seeing like what pathogens are in deer kids in Pennsylvania. And so all of that work was based on kids that we collected off deer primarily at deer processors because we don't have check stations or anything in Pennsylvania but that's a good place that collect a lot of deer. The other way that we got kids the first 2 years was this citizen science project called Pennsylvania Parasite Hunters where we had a website where hunters could sign up for a collection kit and then we sent 2,000 collection kits to hunters across the state, and they would collect ticks and deer kids from the deer that they harvested and then send them back to us. And so that was a way for us to get better coverage across the state in addition to us checking deer at deer processors. So we really recruited hunters to help us as well. Both methods of collecting them had pluses and minuses, but were really complementary. So- Collecting deer at deer processors, we got a lot of KEDs off a lot of deer because we were the ones doing the checking and we could check each deer thoroughly, but had generally pretty limited geographic distribution. Most deer at most processors are coming locally from the county that they're in. You get a couple here and there, like the hunter went to a hunting camp and then brought the deer from three hours away. And we did go to three processors in the north central part of the state, the western part of the state, and then down in the southeast. So we got some geographic coverage that way, but it was still pretty limited, but the hunters themselves were spread all across the state. They didn't check the deer as thoroughly because they're often dragging a deer out of the woods that they just shot and want to get it processed and cut up before it spoils. They also, you know, may or may not have known as well what they were looking for, how to check thoroughly. Uh, But they, they sent us with something like a 25% return rate on our kits, which was really high. I felt and they sent us a bunch of kids from all over the state. So now we have a really good idea of where deer kids occur in Pennsylvania. They are most abundant in northern parts of the state. Up to 90% of deer are infested up there and they often have very heavy infestations. Out in the western part of the state near Pittsburgh, there are fewer deer kids although they're still present, so anywhere from 20 to 60% of deer have kids. And the infestations are often a lot lighter. You might only find one or two kids per deer. And then down in the southeast, around Philadelphia and Lancaster counties, there's deer kids are absent. They're just not there. We found one kid off one deer after checking a few hundred deer in that area. So you've got this really weird uh, geographic distribution going on in the state, which means there are differences in. The risk posed to hunters and people out in the woods uh, from deer kid bites. There's going to be a lot higher risk in the northern parts of the state because there's just more kids up there.
2: What is a heavy infestation?
1: Like how many? Uh, ked- what's that threshold? We got more than 200 kids off one deer.
2: Wow! And where are they found on the body of the deer?
1: So that was another push of the research. We figured if we're checking these deer, we might as well do it in a systematic way. Maybe we can say something about how ticks and keds interact on the deer, if they partition deer, if there's any kind of on-host competition. There have been a couple studies that have looked at that between tick species, but none that have looked at ticks and other large ectoparasites like deer keds. And so we had two methods that we kind of refined as we want. One where we split the deer into three sections, not actually like cutting them up, but just you know visually splitting them. And then one where we split them into five sections. So it'd be the head and then front and back quarters. And we would check each section for a specific amount of time for the five section method. We would have two people that would check each section for one minute and we'd rotate in a circle. So each section got checked for two minutes and the deer overall got checked for 10 person minutes uh, because each person was checking each section for uh, the whole deer for five minutes in total. We kept track of how many ticks of each kind of tick species because we got black-legged ticks and winter ticks off deer, and then how many deer kids we got from each section. And then we can compare deer across the state to each other and see where our ticks and kids found on the deer. Uh, and we found that similar to some other studies, black-legged ticks are found primarily on the head and the front of deer. Uh, And it makes sense because deer are leading with their head. They're often face to the ground eating and where are black legged ticks, they're on the ground, they're in the leaf litter, they're on low lying vegetation. So the the first part of the deer that comes in contact with where the ticks are is the face, if they're eating or the the front legs. So that's where the black legged ticks primarily are. But the European deer kids are all over the deer. They had no preference for body section. They're, equally abundant over the entire body of the deer. We were fortunate in that there was some colleagues down in Alabama and in Maryland that were also interested in deer kids, just happened to be at the same time and were doing their own kind of study. And so they picked up our sectioning method for checking and they got data for neotropical deer kids in the Southeast. So we were able to compare Neotropical deer kids and black-legged ticks in the southeast to European deer kids and black-legged ticks up here in the northeast, and actually found that they partition deer differently. So neotropical deer kids are found primarily on the rump of the deer. uh, and they actually partition it with deer kids. They they don't interact with black-legged ticks much at all because the black-legged ticks are on the front of the deer, neotropical deer kids are on the back of the deer, and they don't overlap. While up here, European deer kids are all over the deer, so they're on the head and on the front of the body where the black-legged ticks are and they can interact. And we think that they may, that may lead to pathogen transmission from ticks to deer kids via co-feeding. So, so some other studies in ticks have found that if two ticks feed near each other and one is infected with a pathogen and the other isn't, they can transmit that pathogen tick to tick, even though, say, deer aren't, hosts for the Lyme disease bacteria their immune systems wipe it out they don't get Lyme the way like people and dogs do but ticks on deer can pass Lyme to each other even though the deer's immune system will kill it because they're just so close to each other that the white blood cells don't have a chance to kill all the bacteria before one a, uninfected tick sucks up the bacteria and gets infected itself so because ticks and deer kids are feeding next to each other we think that this co-feeding may be one avenue that kids can become infected with pathogens, even though you know they're not feeding on say small mammals, which are the primary hosts of Lyme disease bacteria, for example. So there's some weird interactions with the European deer kids and black legged ticks on host because they're all over the deer kids are all over the hosts. But
0: <laughs> to just be clear, are they associated with vectoring something like Lyme or
1: not? We don't know. Okay. So pathogen transmission studies are difficult and expensive. Right. Uh, you got to have the right BSL biosecurity level labs to do those kind of studies. Uh, We actually have a BSL-2 facility here. Eric has got one. So we, we could do the studies, but you've got to get all kinds of like IACUC permissions and whatnot. You also have to have The kids on an uninfected host and know you have infected kids and let them feed and then sacrifice the host to see if they got infected, to see if transmission happened. Mm -hmm. It's just really difficult and we haven't done it yet. So, all of our studies with pathogens have been collecting wild kids on host and then screening them whole body. So, we just take the entire body of the kid, throw it in some PCR buffer, extract all of the DNA in there, and then screen it for pathogens. So, we have gotten positive hits for certain pathogens in Pennsylvania, but it's not clear if, it's not clear if we're just picking up pathogens that are say in the blood of the last blood meal of the kid, maybe we're just seeing like they're feeding on an infected host. And then even if the pathogens are in the deer kids, it's not clear that they can transmit them after that.
0: Right. Which happens with, even with ticks, right? I mean, we have tick species that pick up pathogens, but then they don't. They can't move them. They can't close the circuit,
1: right? And that happens with bed bugs too. Like they can pick up pathogens from people, but there's not a single case of bed bug transmission known.
2: Right. They can Um, harbor it inside their body, but they can't necessarily like acquire it or replicate it or transmit it.
0: So it's like the whole circle can't make the disease triangle. Right. What are you screening for? If if I missed it, I apologize. But what are the pathogens? Okay.
1: Uh, so typically tick-borne pathogens. So we screened, the study that we just had come out, we screened for Lyme disease bacteria, anaplasma, Rickettsia, Bartonella, which the best known bart- pathogenic Bartonella is going to be the bacteria that cause cat scratch fever. Although okay. the ones we're looking for are a different but related species. Rickettsia? And Rickettsia. Okay. So in the 600 kids that we screened from Pennsylvania, we did not find... L- find Lyme disease bacteria, which is in contrast to a previous study that looked at about 30 kids. Uh, it did recover Lyme disease bacteria from Pennsylvania kids, So we have some questions about why they found Lyme, but we didn't. That study looked at deer that were shot in the summer. And because kids are long-lived and Lyme disease bacteria are difficult to transmit, even between ticks, ticks have to feed for 24 to 48 hours before they acquire it. Our thought might be that there's some kind of temporal component. The kids we're looking at are all young, weeks to maybe a month old, uh, because we're looking at kids that are collected in the fall. So there may be some kind of like they can acquire Lyme disease bacteria, but it's a really rare event. So it takes months for them to get it. And this other study looked at months old kids. Something we're going to follow up with is collecting kids probably off roadkill throughout an entire year and then screening them. Again, to see if like oh yeah in January five percent of kids have Lyme, in March thirty percent have Lyme, but it, as far as our study went on the kids that are going to be exposed to hunters the most none of them were positive for Lyme disease. We did find Anaplasma, uh, which causes Anaplasmosis, and we found the human pathogenic species. It was in a low number of kids. It was at something like fifteen percent of what we screened, but it was there but we don't know if it can transmit. We didn't find any pathogenic rickettsias, but we did find a typically, well, we found an endosymbiotic rickettsia that's usually found in ticks, but we picked it up in kids. It's <clears> never been reported from them before. So it, it might be a case of like transmitting ticks to kids. And we did find Bartonella. At high levels, something like 95% of all kids we screened had this oh, Bartonella. Wow. That
0: doesn't load well.
1: It's the same species that is found in deer keds in Europe, and this Bartonella species has been found in ked pupae, so it's transmitted mothered offspring, Uh, and typically when that happens, that's a good indicator that they can probably transmit it as a vector to hosts as well. So it's at a high prevalence in deer keds, European studies have found it in the pupae, in Europe, there was a study that found higher percentages of moose in KED-infested areas had this Bartonella in their blood compared to moose in areas that have no KEDs. So again, it's kind of anecdotal, but there's this correlation between lots of KEDs in this, this <laughs> bacteria and moose. And there's been suggestions that this Bartonella is the causative agent in Europe of KED bite dermatitis. So something I didn't talk about is when keds bite people, it results in this kind of small, itchy, hard lump, uh, because it's it's an insect bite and your body's reacting to that. In most people, the bite resolves without intervention in just a few days. But in some people, that hard, itchy bump can last for upwards of a year. We don't know why, but one suggestion is it's this bacteria that's causing that that kid bite dermatitis to last for a long time. So there's anecdotal evidence that this this Bartonella that we found at high prevalence in Pennsylvania can be transmitted by Keds and is causing issues in humans, but nobody's done the final nail in the coffin. Like we put Keds on a guinea pig and then found the Bartonella in the blood. And so it's definitely vectoring it.
2: Will they readily bite pets or like domestic animals or or livestock that we keep?
1: There are... A couple reports of European deer kids being found on horses and cows, but not very many. So they're probably incidental. There are lots of reports of them biting people, uh, even in Pennsylvania. So once we started doing these hunter surveys, we got lots of reports from hunters all over the state saying, oh, yeah, these things have been biting me. Um, I'm glad that somebody's looking into it. It turns out that they're actually really common biters in the state. Just nobody was asking the people that are being bitten about it until we came along and now we're like, oh, shoot, this is actually a problem. Another cool aspect of deer keds is that they cue into movement. So unlike mosquitoes that are cueing into like carbon dioxide and finding hosts through chemical cues, deer keds are visual. They will sit on a leaf or up on a plant and they'll watch for something moving through the woods and then fly to it and land on it. The only report about how far they'll fly came out of Russia. And I think I translated it all correctly using Google Translate. (laughs) But it was from the 70s too. They reported that kids will fly anywhere from 15 to 50 meters to find a host and how far they fly depends on temperature. So on warmer days, they'll fly further. And because they're queuing into movement, they'll fly to any large moving object in the woods. Most of the time that... Deer, because that's the most common big thing out in the woods, but that also includes people. If you're say hiking in the woods at the right time, or dogs, we don't have any reports of deer kids, of European deer kids feeding on dogs in the United States. Well, I take that back. I have one that a client sent me, but there's no published report. So I we have mm-hmm. one unpublished report, but there are numerous reports of them infesting dogs in Europe. Um, okay. So again, I'm not sure why there's this disconnect of. Slightly different things happening in Europe compared to here. It might be like some kind of founder effect, like the kids we have here were imported probably from the United Kingdom on deer that were brought over to be shot in canned hunting situation by rich people. I can talk about more more about that in a minute. Um, But it might be like the kids where they came from are less inclined to feed on dogs. A lot of the, the European deer kids that are feeding on dogs, a lot of those reports are coming from Eastern Europe and Poland and uh, what the Czech Republic, northern Italy, even less so from the UK. So it might be some kind of weird founder effect. But yeah, they'll, they'll definitely get on pets as well.
2: So when they bite a human, is it very painful and they usually get slapped? Like, do they usually die or are they? do they bite and we can't feel them?
1: People so listen. I have not personally been bitten, but a bunch of our field techs have while doing other work. Erica does a lot of work with mice, and so they do fall trapping for mice, and they were pulling 20, 30, 40 keds off of them in a day, uh, and it's just, ked bites aren't super common. There's so many keds around that there's just so many landing on them that they were getting bitten, and they told me that it is fairly painful. You know when it happens. But it's, it's not like the most painful thing. So I, the way I imagine it is probably like a horsefly bite. Like, you know, it happens the in a way that you don't want a mosquito bite you, but it's not like somebody's mm-hmm. stabbing you or something.
0: To go back to some of the, the discussion about pathogens and things, I, will, I wanted to ask maybe kind of an out of left field question about alpha gal. Has anybody yeah. considered that with this? Is that a possibility or... Nobody
1: has considered that. I guess I'll uh, throw it back to you. Do we know what causes alpha-gal yet? Like, Because a while ago I heard it was like, oh, there's a little bit of non-primate mammalian blood that, that Lone Star takes will squirt into you, and that's what you're reacting to. But now it looks like it might be a salivary protein that... I guess I thought
0: it was a sugar molecule that was picked up while they were feeding on deer, and then... They could transmit that to us. But likewise, I mean, it seems like it's something that's still getting unboxed, I guess. Maybe we should have a, a guest on in the future to talk about mm, alpha-gal yeah. to, uh, and red meat allergy for those of you who, who don't know it as alpha-gal. But I was just curious with things that feed on deer, if that is where alpha-gal can come from, uh, I was curious if deer kid saliva could, could possibly induce this as well.
1: We don't know because we don't know a whole lot about these things in general. right? Nobody's looking, but that'll be something. I'll bring that up to Erica. Maybe we can come up with a way to look at that. So I my guess is that probably not, or it's a low chance. So I mentioned that deer kids shed their wings after they get on a host. So for non-hunters, people that are just hiking out in the woods and the kids fly to them and bite, those kids have not fed before. Because they still have their wings, they haven't shed their wings after landing on a host, and so there's no chance that they're transmitting like a little bit of blood or sugar or whatever from another host, another a deer to that person they're biting because they've they've never fed. So if that's how alpha gal is being induced, then no, because they're that's not happening. Now, if you're a hunter and you're processing a deer and the cats run up your arms and then bite you, maybe.
0: Which would be truly tragic, right? Because you're the hunter.
1: Yeah, trying to Uh, eat those red You probably
0: want to eat that deer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I will say, though, hunters, at least here, are kind of a neglected group as far as research goes. Because deer kids historically have not been thought of to be pathogen vectors. Because they land on a host and shed their wings and don't move hosts. Right. Except we've got a million hunters, deer hunters in Pennsylvania. Like, here especially, it is... A significant portion of our population with a large client base.
0: Is that a, a literal statistic? A million? If not, you being?
1: Yeah, being no. Glib? We've. Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit lower than that. It was eight hundred thousand last year. Wow. Um, But within the last ten years, we have crested a million. That's amazing. Um, in a state with twelve million people, so it's right. you know something like a little less than ten percent of the population. We have a higher percentage than a lot of other states. We also have a a crap ton of deer kids here, so (laughs) the risk is higher. So uh, yeah, with alpha gal, for most people, if you're not hunting deer or interacting with deer, it's probably a low to no risk just because of the way they're feeding. If you are a hunter, then their risk is probably higher if they can do it, but there's no indication yet that they can.
2: And you mentioned like how they're distributed differently Can that be attributed to some type of habitat or like wooded areas? Like I'm not super familiar with Pennsylvania. Is that how it is? And then also since deer can be also in urban areas, is that a problem in urban areas?
1: We don't know. The longer answer is deer kids, because the pupae need to fall into leaf litter to hang out for weeks to months to maybe even a year you get more issues with deer kids in more forested areas. So in highly urban areas, you'll possibly have issues with them in large parks, like large city parks where there are deer, but you're going to have less problems with them in more urbanized areas where there's no leaf litter. Pittsburgh is probably of the cities, the big cities in the state going to have the most problems because I don't know if you've ever seen it, but one, there are large city parks, but two, some of the hillsides are just so darn steep that they're not developed even in downtown Pittsburgh there are hillsides that are forested because they just can't be developed due to their steepness and there are deer there and so and there's deer kid habitat there so in say Pittsburgh it may be an issue where in other cities it may not be there also seems to be maybe a temperature issue and so deer kids are found european deer kids are found in the northeast down into Pennsylvania they're most abundant in northern areas where it's really cold less abundant in the West where it's slightly warmer and absent from the East where it's really warm. But you find them a little bit further South. We'll find them in West Virginia, but only in the Appalachians. And we find them even down into Virginia, but again, only in the highest parts of the Appalachians down there. So it seems like they follow the mountains down a little bit further South than Pennsylvania. So there might be some kind of temp, uh, temperature issue going on where they need maybe certain winter temperatures for development that you get at higher elevations further south. But we don't know. And honestly, I we've got really good uh, collection data, including like GPS localities for a bunch of specimens. So some kind of like habitat niche modeling would be a really neat kind of follow-up study to this to see like what's going on, where do we expect to find them? Because before this, the furthest Southern records were Pennsylvania until we started finding a couple like in Virginia and stuff and kind of changed our thought about where they're found.
2: Are they considered an invasive species or
1: were they? Well, what's an invasive species? We've talked about this. Uh huh. They're certainly introduced. Whether they're invasive or not is up for debate. They're not, as far as we know, causing economic damage. Some deer are heavily infested, but as far as we can tell, they're not causing any kind of health issues in deer. So there was a good, there was a cool study out of Georgia that looked at neotropical deer Keds, um, which is a species that is co-evolved with whitetail deer, but they found that even in heavily infested deer, the Keds will cause increased grooming and scratching behavior, but no ca- no loss of body condition. Even in heavily infested deer here, there doesn't seem to be any loss of body condition. So they they're annoying, but they don't If they are transmitting pathogens deer to deer, that could be an issue, but they don't seem to be causing any kind of overt effects that we can tell. And again, they're biting people and that can be really frustrating and annoying. Is that enough to consider them invasive because of human impact? I mean, if they're not transmitting pathogens, maybe not. If they are transmitting pathogens, maybe yes. So Mm -hmm. it kind of depends on what your definition of invasive.
2: When were they first found in the US?
1: Do you know? I do. So they were first found in the early 1900s, like 1904, I want to say, in Connecticut. So they were probably here introduced a few years to a few decades before that. So my guess is they were probably brought over sometime in the late 1800s. And they were found in Connecticut right around Blue Mountain. It's a hunt club uh, up in Connecticut. I think it's called Blue Mountain, but it might be called something else. It's basically a fenced in area of like 20 square acres or something ridiculous where all of the robber barons at the turn of the century used to go hunt canned deer. And they imported deer from Europe for this exclusive rich person hunt club. And it's right outside of that hunt club that deer kids were first picked up on native whitetail deer. And so, I mean, it's not a big jump to say that it's probably these rich people importing like red deer and other European deer so they can shoot them in this Pandaria that introduced European deer kids to the Northeast.
2: Do you think they're becoming more and more common? Like, do you think they're going to spread?
1: We don't know. They've had a hundred years to spread and they can fly and deer are highly mobile so, my guess is that they've probably spread to the extent that they're going to under the current climate regime. Now, the range may change as the climate warms. If there is this temperature component to where they can be, you know, we may see their southern limit kind of move north as it gets warmer. The biggest issue with them and why we're still picking up new range records and expanding the range, I think, is because we're looking. Because deer keds are on host most of the year and nobody's looking at dead deer for parasites, uh, we picked up, say, new state records for Ohio, slightly west of here. There was another study uh, looking at neotropical deer kid in Tennessee. There was only a handful of records before Becky Trout and her student down there started looking at deer at deer processors, and they found them in high abundance across the entire state. So the idea is like the yeah, deer kids are and that's a native species. So deer keds are probably lots of places. We just haven't been looking for them because no entomologists have been looking at deer. So my guess is that deer keds are probably everywhere that they're going to be, but we're still finding them in new places because we're actually looking for the first Mm -hmm. time in a hundred years.
2: And for people that want to not be bitten by deer keds, is there a repellent or what's the best way to prevent that?
1: Good news. We did a study last year on insect repellents deer kids. It's not published. I'm still in the process of writing it. So hopefully we're going to get this out soon. I'd normally say don't spread this too far, but I'm telling it on a podcast of a thousand people, but I, whatever, I'm not scooping myself and nobody else is doing this research. So I'm not worried about it. Deer kids that have shed their wings off of deer. So they may act a little bit different from winged deer kids because they can't fly, but we don't think they will. So we got wingless gear kids and the experiment was neat. We put them in a little arena and then we put a sock over our hand and five inches up the sock, we put a 10 inches of insect repellent and we tested DEET, IR-3535, picaridin, permethrin, and oil of lemon eucalyptus. Five repellents that are you know, CDC, CDC, EPA approved. Yep. The idea being like the kids could go from the arena up the sock. And then when they encountered the repellents, if they were repelled, they'd hang out below the repellent or move away from it. And if they weren't repelled, they would just climb over it or not care. None of the repellents worked. None of the repellents repelled the kids. They did not care a lick that those chemicals were on the sock. Uh, And we add multiple replications of it. We've got good statistical significance. None of them work. The one good news is that permethrin, which acts as a repellent, because when ticks encounter it, they do this thing called hot footing, where they encounter it and they start lifting their legs up because it's like burning their feet, and then they fall off because they're hot footing. Heads don't do that, but they do die within 10 to 15 minutes of being exposed to it. It doesn't repel them. But if you have a deer kid land on you while you have permethrin treated clothing, they just die uh, and quickly. So maybe even so quickly that they can't bite you. So it's not going to stop them from landing on you, but it is going to maybe stop you from being bitten.
2: Then the other ones were they put on the skin,
1: the repellents, Yeah, we put them on the sock um, okay. to act like treated clothing. And yeah, the other kids didn't. Some of them we treated above and beyond what the recommend recommended dosages are like the deep one, you could have wrung the D out of it and they didn't care. Uh, and it's DEET. probably related to the fact that they are visual parasites. They're queuing into movement and not chemical cues. So
2: for for treated clothes and the other ones are skin repellent. So I didn't know if they were put on the
1: skin, if that would have mattered. mattered. Yeah. We tried to treat everything the same. And, and again, we're using wingless KEDs. They may act differently from winged KEDs, but winged KEDs are hard to collect in abundance. But we needed a few hundred KEDs to do our initial trials. So we worked with what we could. And if we can get more funding, maybe we'll try to do it with winged KEDs.
2: If someone was outside and they find something that they think is a KED, are you still doing a community science project? What should someone do? How could they reach out
1: to you? I mean, if people find kids either landing on themselves or just on deer because they're hunting, I am always happy to get more data on kids. We are soliciting kids from people right now. Specifically, we're soliciting winged kids. All of the screenings that we did before were with kids that had fed on deer. And again, we don't know if pathogens we're picking up are from infected host blood. So we want to screen winged kids that we know have not fed before. So anything that's in there had to be transferred mother to offspring. In that, again, there's a higher chance that they are actual vectors of those pathogens. So this year we solicited winged kids from hunters uh, and got some sent in. I put a survey out and we asked hunters like, "Where are you seeing deer kids?" And we tried to do it in a systematic way where we asked them how far they walked, what time of day. Environmental and weather conditions, and then how many kids landed on them. That survey just ended a couple, maybe two weeks ago. So I haven't processed the data yet. So we're trying to find KED hotspots in Pennsylvania, uh, and that'll let us go out and collect wing kids ourselves next year as well. But if listeners say next year have kids that land on them, I would love to have more wing kids. I'd also love to have kids even from deer and stuff that you find. I had uh, one person reach out from Tennessee. She sent me some neotropical deer kids, but was like, hey, my friend in Ohio has these deer kids from a deer. Do you want those? And yeah, sure. She sent me those and it turned out to be a, the first state record uh, and a new county record, the furthest western record we have for deer kids. So yeah, I would love to see all the deer kids people have because you never know what you're gonna get. Could be new county or state records. We may do more pathogen screening in the future. We're kind of banking kids in the freezer for that. We might do some genomic work. So we could use more specimens for that. So anything anybody wants to send me, I'm always happy. Either physical specimens or even just photographs because we can get a lot of data from that. If you Google Penn State insect identification, that has all the instructions on how to send specimens, both digital and physical. And that's going to be the easiest way to uh, get specimens to me if you think you have found the deer kid.
2: Is there anything else that you
1: want to add before we wrap it up? This has been the last kind of four years of my life. But it's been really exciting. I kind of pitched the idea to Erica because like I thought hippobosses bosses were cool and I didn't know a whole lot about them, but it was a chance to work on this weird group of flies. I'm really grateful that she agreed to it. I've now published more on Deer Kids than any other subject, including anything I've done during like my PhD or master's work. But like I never intended to be a, a wildlife or a veterinary entomologist or like somebody that works on pathogens. but uh, it just kind of fell into my lap and I'm really glad that it did because it's been really fun and exciting. And, you know, kind of tying it into the last episode, if you listen to our episode on going to grad school and kind of routes that you might may find yourself taking, you know, I didn't do anything with veterinary or, or med vet entomology before like my job. Like I didn't do anything like this in grad school. Nothing I did prepared me for this. Aside from like broad scale taxonomy, knowing how to identify stuff. You don't have to be shoehorned into something just because you did. That's what you did your degree work on. And I hope to keep publishing on them. This has been been really exciting. Hopefully in another four years, I'll have more to say. Thanks, Mike. That's awesome, dude. Yeah. Thank you for being our guest today, Mike. Uh, (laughs) Thank you for asking.
0: (laughs) Uh, Jody, are you satiated? Has your curiosity been satisfied?
2: Yeah, I just want to go check some like deer armpits or whatever.
0: Well, if we don't hear from Jody again in the future, we'll know it's because she's lost in the singular Nebraskan woods looking for deer, deer kids. That was awesome. Thank you, dude. If you want to learn more about entomology, if you want to find more about our show, you can find us on the web at arthro-pod.blogspot.com. You can also find the show on Twitter, arthro underscore pod show. We're on all your favorite apps that you listen to podcasts with you always have to put arthro dash pod don't spell the dash out just use the the actual symbol that's on the keyboard uh and then you'll find us on uh apple podcasts spotify anywhere that you like to listen to podcasts uh i'm also on the internet for now until twitter goes bye-bye i'm at bugman john i'm at jody
2: bugs me you and l
1: and i'm at mscovarla 36 we hope you enjoyed
0: learning a little bit about this neglected corner of Diptera and that you are now intrigued by deer kids If you want to contribute to Citizen Science, look up Mike's stuff online, uh, and we hope that you'll tune in in a couple of weeks for another exciting episode of Arthropod. We're going to be jumping into the book Locust, so get a copy, start reading it and join our little book club. We'll see you then.
1: It's time for our insect heroes to put away their nets and pheromone traps. Join us next time. Same bug time, same bug channel as the Arthropod gang make the world safe from poor insect podcasts. Until then, keep on bugging. Oh, I swore I said something earlier this year. Nope. i I mean, if you did, we both forgot. Which is also possible. That seems
0: fairly <laughs> likely.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, it's a, it's a toss-up. 50-50, you didn't tell us or we forgot, honestly.
0: I feel like it's maybe more like 70-30 that you guys I, forgot. You <laughs> know, I
2: think it's more likely that Mike would forget because he asked us to do the videos for his talk and he forgot. <laughs>